Has it ever occurred to you just how incredible grapes are? Now think about it. That little box of raisins your mother packed in your lunch bag was the only fruit that qualified as a dessert. And consider this. When we hear juicy gossip, we say we heard it through the grapevine. We didn't hear it through the apple tree or the berry bush. Grapes are so darn special that the grocery store expects us to snitch a few to ensure quality control. Try doing that with a banana or a pineapple. Admit it, every encounter you've ever had with grapes has been positive. That's why we created Grape Encounters, a place for adults to hang out and focus on the paramount achievement of grapedom. Delicious, irresistible wine. Wine brings people together. It starts conversations. It makes us happy. In fact, wherever there are grapes, there's gorgeous scenery, very cool people, and plenty of laughter. All that being said, let's bring out your guide for this journey. The Wizard of Wine, the Gangster of Grape, David Wilson. And it's time for your weekly grape encounter. And there are certain people that I have on the show. Actually, you wish that they were just sitting next to you and they could just be the co-host because they're so much fun. They're so cool to talk to. And the person that I'm talking to today is someone that I had on, I, I guess it was about a year ago. And that episode in podcast form was so popular that I ran it not once, but twice again. And that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> so anyway, I am pleased to welcome to the show Marianne Warabek from Wine Spectator Magazine. She has a new title, the Napa Bureau Chief. And Marianne, this is really yes. nice to see you. It's great to see you. And thank you so much for having me back. I also got a lot of positive feedback from our last chats and happy to talk wine with you. Well, I think one of these days, if you retire from Wine Spectator, you have a chair waiting here. Oh, <laughs> I'll even move over to the number two seat. <laughs> you're just a, you're a, a wealth of information. So we're going to talk about a story that came out this week that actually kind of surprised me because it didn't seem like a wine spectator kind of thing, but it's a great new addition to the lists that you publish. You know, you have your top 100 and, you know, all kinds of lists, but this one was really different because this was the top 10 value wines. And yes. we're talking about wines that we could all afford even after and during COVID. So what in the world? This is really not the kind of thing that I would expect to come from your wheelhouse. Uh, well, thanks for giving me a chance to talk about it. And to let you know, uh, we know the words value wine in that order can seem a little pejorative. So we're calling them wine values. <laughs> I'm putting the word wine first because that, <laughs> yeah. of course, is most important. You know, I, I agree. I think that sometimes even though values are part of our DNA and something we cover regularly, you know, in each issue we try to feature it, you know, there's there's other stories throughout the year and highlights, but sometimes it gets a little overshadowed by the wine of the year in the top 100. And in fact, for years, we had been putting a value list together in that same issue, but no one was talking about it because everyone was talking about the wine of the year and all the expensive, fancy wines yeah. we tried. And the truth is that great wine doesn't have to be expensive. And we know that. And there's something actually extremely satisfying about highlighting wines that people can afford and that are easier to find. And 
And so in his infinite wisdom, our publisher, Marvin Schenken, had the idea of pulling out the value component separate from the top 100. And as you said, we had our first ever wine value of the year, an amazing Sauvignon Blanc from the Alan Scott family in New Zealand. And then that rounds out with the whole top 10 of best wine values of the year. And then if you pick up that issue, I heard the um, advance just dropped, but we also have other tips on purchasing wine values. Okay. So let's stop with that number one wine for a second, because it literally was just a handful of years ago that if you went into a wine store, you were lucky if you saw two Sauvignon Blancs from New Zealand. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, right? Maybe 10 years? Yeah. And now it's a wine that is all the rage. And it really, to me, suits the American palate, the, the, the broad majority of wine drinkers, almost better than what we make here. And I know I'm going to get flack for saying that. But, you know, it's got that, that tropical component and it's less dry. It's got that, you know, hint of sweetness often. And people just love that wine. I mean, how can you not? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I've been covering the category for a little more than a decade. And you're right. In that time, there have been double digit growths every year consecutively about, you know, the number of wines imported or the volume of wines imported into the U.S. It's one of the most imported wines currently. And some of the best selling wines in America are uh, New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs. And you're absolutely right. The style is so distinctive and it has influenced Sauvignon Blancs from all over the world, including the ones in California. It's become another important point in our tasting spectrum. And Uh, One thing that I really like about the Alan Scott Sauvignon Blanc is that it's a unique story because it's not a big corporation. It's a family-run operation. Alan Scott was one of the people who originally planted vines. In fact, he can claim that he has worked every single vintage ever of Mar- in Marlborough's wine history wow. uh, since 1973. And now his um, son and daughter, uh, Josh Scott and Sarah Stocker, have started to take over the family business, which is another fascinating thing about the story because New Zealand is such a young wine industry. There aren't multi-generational stories yet. So you can buy a wine under $20 that has amazing terroir that's consistent from year to year from a family-run company that is building a legacy. I remember an interview that I did, and I don't remember his name, but he was head of the New Zealand Vintners Association. And I said to him that I thought it was interesting that every wine, it seems, that I taste from New Zealand is good. I just like it. And I said, what's the deal with that? And his answer, he said, we don't let the bad wines get out of the country. That is so true. I, I have a feeling you're talking about my friend, David Strada. Yes, was, that's it. Was, yeah. Yes. Yeah, who was the representative for the New Zealand wine growers. Yes. And well, well, first off, part of the consistency there is an example of their terroir and their amazing soils and weather there. And, and also one thing that I like to point out is, is how intense the UV rays are. If you think of New Zealand, remember, it's a really skinny island. There's wind coming from all different directions. It's not that far away from yeah. Antarctica. There's no pollution there. The skies are so blue. So the UV rays actually hit the grapes with more intensity than they do in other parts of the world. So even though it's a cold climate, you're getting a lot of physiological ripeness. But to David's point, yes, the New Zealand wine growers will not allow wines to be exported that aren't good, but there aren't any bad wines anymore, right? So yeah, there is a lot of control and a lot of cooperation. Been lucky enough to spend some some time down there. And you know, when you're a tiny little country on the bottom of the world, you lean on each other a lot. And there's a lot of cooperation among winemakers and um, a lot of sharing of information 
information and and uh, so forth. So so yeah, it's really uh, an honor to highlight this. You know, New Zealand actually makes less than one percent of the wine in the world, and to think of the impact they've had in the last, as you said, decade with those small numbers is really an accomplishment. So let's move on to number two. Yeah. What can you tell me? Well, what can you tell me? Uh, this is up your alley, right? So it's uh, the Castello Bonfi. It's a Chianti Classico right. 2019. Yeah. When you hear the words Chianti Classico, what are you expecting to drink? First of all, I love Chianti Classico. And I must say that now being based in Italy, one of the things that I'm discovering is just how good the bulk of the wines are that are made there. And I really can't say that I've had much in the way of Chianti Classico that isn't delicious. Yeah. It might be a little drier for the American palate, I suppose. It might be a little big as well, but not for mine because mine's worn out. <laughs> but anyway, Costello Bonfi, tell me about it. Uh, well, he is an um, iconic producer in Montalcino. And I think the story here is about blending and about having access to a lot of different grapes. Um, but as you mentioned, uh, Chianti Classicos are kind of a bolder red wine. It it is aged for a total of 12 months. The first seven to eight are in actually stainless steel tanks. And then they're put in these big 6,000 to 9,000 liter oak casks. Yeah. So you will ex- you know, have these bold reds with an oak influence in there. But uh, Castello Bonfi has has been around for a really long time. And this is just one example of the amazing wines in their portfolio at a really great price of $17. And my colleague, Bruce Sanderson, gave it 91 points. And they make 40,000 cases of that. Yeah. Yeah. And 23,000 cases are imported, although maybe a little bit more might be imported now <laughs> with the attention we've given it. And, and thanks for bringing that up. That's one of the factors that we put into this list is that a $10 wine that only 10 cases were made of is less interesting to us than a wine that Gosh, can that's... reach more of our, our readers. And so we definitely consider availability and in the cases of imported that, wines. That, the is, number of cases that is so true because it's so annoying to read reviews and also to read comments of people on Facebook and places mm-hmm. like that where they go on and on about a wine that I can't get. That just irritates me. We're going to have to take a little break here. But sure. but we have on Marianne Warabek, one of my all-time favorite guests. Oh, don't say that. No, you you're are one, you're one of, of my all-time favorite wine radio hosts. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, Marianne, there's not a yeah, lot of us. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a lot of podcasters out there. I get so irritated when people call me a podcaster. I go, oh, you man. know what? It's, it takes a lot of work to get on real radio stations. My dog can have a podcast. So anyway, we're going to be back with Grape Encounters right after this. You're listening to Grape Encounters with David Wilson. We offer something for everyone. Unfortunately, we're not allowed to offer free wine. That's what your friends are for. Smoke from increasing wildfires is tainting wine grapes, and vineyard executives are looking for new ways to adapt. Pure Fresh Wine's O3 technology helps vineyards overcome the problems caused by wildfire smoke by treating grapes pre-crush to improve fermentation and overall wine quality, as well as removing smoke taint. For the typical winery, saving a full harvest of grapes with Pure Fresh Wine costs only 10 cents per bottle. O3 technology has been approved by the FDA and USDA. It leaves no residue and uses no chemicals. It provides many benefits to wineries, including the removal of sulfur, pesticides, and fungicides pre-crush, the reduction of bad bacteria and mold issues, an improvement in roundness and fruit-forward palate notes, and so much more. 
Most importantly, it safely and naturally breaks down smoke taint molecules to save grapes from damage. Rescue your harvest from smoke taint. Visit purefreshwine.com today. We are back with Grape Encounters Radio. Marianne Warbeck from Wine Spectator is with me. She's like the most down-to-earth person that you could possibly meet. You know, so when you when you think that people who write for those fancy wine magazines are unapproachable, nah, not at all. Uh-uh. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> and you're up in the, the Napa Valley, and I am. how have things been up there? A little quiet. Oh, yeah. It's a strange world up there as it is everywhere else. You know, it's one of those you go to a restaurant and it's closed because of staffing or, you know, COVID uh, related issues. And people are starting to shelter in place and shelves are getting a little empty in grocery stores. But one thing um, I've noticed about being a nap is th- throughout this whole pandemic is that it's been a, a bit of an escape for people. There's a lot of Tourists are still there because there's so many opportunities to do things outside. So many tasting rooms are accommodating, so many restaurants. The weather's pretty great when it's not yeah. raining. And uh, yeah, so there's still energy there. But yeah, like everywhere else, we're kind of holding our breaths literally and figuratively um, a bit. In, in history, they will refer to this period of time as here we go again. <laughs> but <laughs> it'll be over soon enough. But you know what? If you want to counteract the the depression that you have from having to endure COVID for going on three years pretty soon. Um, At least you can drink some great wines at a great price. One of those wines, by the way, at about 25 bucks Uh is the number three wine on the wine spectator list. And it's an easy one to remember. It's, (laughs) it's easy to remember. Just remember the letter J. Okay. And, and that, okay. that's it. And I love their wines in general. I really yeah. do. General with a J. <laughs> <laughs> general with a J, you like the J with a J? Yeah. You know, um, I first, I think like a lot of people, you know, knew J when uh, I think it was Judy Jordan started this right. brand as a sparkling wine house making beautiful, crisp, clean uh, bubbles. And since then has expanded as as naturally sparkling producers do into Pinot Noir territory because Pinot Noir grapes are one of the grapes that go into sparkling wines traditionally. And um, this Sonoma-based J Vineyards and Winery, we picked the Pinot Noir uh, that's made from grapes from Monterey, Sonoma, and Santa Barbara counties. It's the Winemaker Selection 2018. It's 20. Five dollars. Um, my colleague Kim Marcus gave it ninety-one points, and there's an amazing sixty-five thousand cases made of this. And I think the story here is Jay is now owned by a little family winery called Ian Jay Gallo, and what that does for them is it gives them access to many more vi- vineyards across the state. As yeah. I mentioned, this is a blend of Monterey, Sonoma, and Santa Barbara. So, you know, if you if you think of winemaking as an art form. When it comes to making um, high volume wines, um, instead of starting with a single vineyard plot, it becomes a story about blending right. and about identifying style. And I think it's just such a, a craft um, to be able to make such amazing wine at this volume. I mean, um, I, I've met a few winemakers who have like, hey, anyone can make a good barrel of wine. But when you start scaling that up, you know, how do you maintain that consistency? And I should also mention that Monterey is an amazing source 
for Pinot Noir. Uh, this comes from uh, Gallo owns the Olson Ranch in the Santa Lucia yeah. Highlands Appalachian, which is another kind of unsung hero. And um, yeah, Sonoma's Russian River Valley and Santa Barbara are also amazing places to drink. So this is, an, is not an expression of a place. This is an expression of Pinot Noir from California. I've not tasted this wine, but it's it's interesting because those three regions are, uh, you know, very different, you know, and so I just wonder how that comes out in the wash. Yeah, credit uh, winemaker Nicole Hitchcock. She definitely knows how to bring in dark fruit flavors from Monterey. And, you know, uh, Sonoma for me, uh, especially Russian River, is this kind of bright cherry flavor. And then Santa Barbara brings in the spiciness. So she really knows how to uh, combine all of those. And it's it's a beautiful wine and hopefully really easy for people to find. Okay, we, we're going to jump on to number four, then we'll have to take a little break. But let's do this one. Bodega Numanthia. Am I saying that right, Numanthia? I believe you are. Yeah, we picked the Tinta del Toro, Toro Termes 2017. Um, it's from Spain, if you can't tell by our, <laughs> our non-accents. Uh, it's $24.91 points from um, Allison Napchis. Um, so I don't know much about this, but I'm going to read Allison's notes so I don't mess up. Um, so this uh, Numantia estate is located northwest of Madrid in the Toro Appalachian. So that's why the word Toro is on there twice. And so there's 500 acres of vineyards spread among 200 different parcels with low-yielding old vines ranging from 50 years on and up. So this family in Rioja helped put the Toro region on the map. And while we were talking about kind of big, bold Italian reds before, this is a more, um, I guess, modern kind of, she, she uses the word suave, but I think you can um, take that to mean it's, it's a more elegant interpretation of red wine. And this is a wine, one of the, the factors that we, we took into account with this list is track records. And uh, we've reviewed 15 vintages of this particular wine, and 13 of them have rated 90 points or higher. So wow. consistency is is really a part of this list and track records. So this is a, a wine made from the Tempranillo grape. And if you're a fan of Spanish wines, or if you're curious about Spanish wines, this is a great place to start and learn a little bit. So quick question about yeah. Spanish wines in general, but I'm going to actually throw in there Portuguese wines. And Ooh. Italian wines. And here's okay. what the question is. Yeah. I've noticed, at least I think, that some of these European countries, they're changing the profile of the wine a little bit to me and making them much more palatable, certainly in America and maybe other parts of the world as well. Is that my fantasy or yeah. is that really what's happening? No, you're absolutely right. I feel like we talked about this before, but I, I'm so glad you're keying in on this point. You know, 20 years ago, there used to be such a thing as an old world wine and a new world right. wine, and we knew how to describe it. And now those, you know, those terms are a little bit outdated. Um, sorry, that's my cat, Harriet. She likes to talk on on radio shows. So um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> she has a lot of opinions. Um, but now, now there's more of a kind of a modern style, I guess, that people are yeah. employing from all over the world where you're right, they're making wines that um, are maybe less tannic, um, more ready to drink. Um, early on, you know, understanding that people really aren't going to sell their wine, they're going to take them home and drink them. And there's also a, a worldwide attempt towards, uh, I guess, what I call freshness, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, there's, um, 
um, you know, highlighting fruit flavors and juiciness over big, big, t- tough tannins. And these are extreme gross generalizations. And, no, I get um, you. I yeah. get you. I, I definitely get you. But I, one of the things that I've really noticed is that the, the Portuguese mm-hmm. are really pouring it on where that's concerned. And I've just noticed that just about everything that I taste from Portugal these days just seems much better suited to the American palate and almost tastes like American wines. And that wasn't always the case. Absolutely. Portugal um, table wines are hot, hot, hot right now. They're rocking it. Yeah, Yeah. they're they're rocking it. And speaking of rocking it, we're rocking it with Marianne (laughs) Warbeck. She is the uh, Napa Bureau Chief and longtime, longtime writer for Wine Spectator. I'm thinking it's like 20-something years. Uh, it'll be 25 years. It's so 24 and a half, I guess we are officially at. And, and, and um, not a gray no. hair on your head. That's the, <laughs> yeah, not, <laughs> that's what happens when you drink plenty of wine. Marianne Warbeck from Wine Spectator is with me. We're going to be back with Grape Encounters right after this. <laughs> At MM Organics, we're surrounded by health nuts. That's because we're obsessed with lowering blood pressure, cholesterol, and the risk of cancer. We want to make weight loss easier and help you strengthen everything from your heart to your teeth, nails, and hair. Full disclosure, those health nuts are actually dry-farmed heirloom certified organic raw walnuts. Rich with essential vitamins and nutrients, they're vastly superior to other nuts. Imagine, walnuts can actually lower stress and boost your brain power. No wonder MM Organics customers are so darn smart. MMOrganics.com is where you'll find our uniquely irresistible raw walnuts, walnut butter, oil and flour, sprouted flavored walnuts, and decadent fair trade chocolate covered walnuts, which pair beautifully with our legendary two horse port style wine. MMOrganics.com eating any other nuts is just plain nuts. Are you following Grape Encounters on social media yet? You're not? Well, you should be. It's the best way to hear the latest, juiciest, unfiltered wine stories. It's also the single best way to keep our unpretentious, decidedly different wine conversations going strong. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Grape Encounters. For tons of content on Facebook, you'll want to join our Grape Encounters radio group page. Or if LinkedIn is more your thing, connect with me by typing Grape Encounters Radio or Grape Encounters David in the search bar. Here's the deal. The more you click, the more I'll pour. with Grape Encounters Radio, and we are here to save you a whole bunch of money. A whole bunch of money, because Wine Spectator, they never lie, but they have presented a list of 10 value wines. They're all 90 plus wines. No, not dollars. 90 plus points. Yeah, they're all like in the, like mostly in the 20 something dollar range. A few of them a little bit higher than that. Anyway, Marianne Warabick is with me, and I love this list. And um, we're going to go, I think we're on number five now, Marianne. 
Yeah, back to California. It's the Sagacio Zinfandel, Sonoma County, uh, Sonoma 2019. And um, I mean, there's there's really no wine that's more um, identified with California than Zinfandel. Um, it does have its history back in, I believe, in Croatia, but Zinfandel is a pretty unique American grape. And the history of Segesio kind of dates back to pre-prohibition. Of course, it's no longer owned by the Segesio family. Um, but the quality of their Zinfandels has not skipped a beat, and all the bottlings have stayed the same. And uh, so this Sonoma County is a blend of, again, and you'll see that happens a lot in value wines. When If you think about it, 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 it makes sense. You know, it, one, one vineyard may have you know, done really well this year or maybe maybe not so well. So if you're able to blend from multiple sources, that helps you maintain a consistent wine from year to year and vintage to vintage. Um, so this 2019 Zinfandel comes from vineyards in Sonoma, Russian River, Alexander Valley, and Dry yeah. Creek. So it's a representation of Sonoma Zinfandel and not Dry Creek or Alexander Valley. So. And I want to I want to throw yeah. in my two cents where Zinfandel is concerned. Oh, okay. You and have here's a, here's an my here's my quick two cents. Okay. Don't ever tell me you don't like Zin. Okay. <laughs> you 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 know what? People who tell me they don't like Zin haven't tasted Zin in recent years because it's evolved and it's really cool. It's really elegant and sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got the stature and elegance of a Cabernet Sauvignon. I, I'm going to take flack for that as well. But I just think the way that Zins are being made right now is just terrific. And so give Zin a chance. And we're going to change the name Zinfandel because it's too frivolous and it makes people think it's not a serious wine. And it is. So drink oh. it. Do you think that's because of White Zinfandel and the history there? I, I do. I, I Absolutely. I absolutely do. I, I think that the, just the, the word Zinfandel s- sounds too playful because it's got fun in the middle of it. <laughs> okay. All right. We're running out of time. So we've got it. Well, you know, you know the joke about Zinfandel, right? No. Uh, <laughs> there's an old joke. Uh, let me see if I can get this right on the first try. Mother Superior tells the other nuns, ladies, I found out we have a case of gonorrhea in the convent. And one of them responds, thank God I was getting tired of Zinfandel. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not thinking it's not good for a bad (laughs) joke. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, good grief. Okay. So, um, Marianne, I am trying to learn Italian. Oh no. And it's, it's, it's tough. I'm telling you Uh it's tough. So sometimes I don't even attempt pronunciations because I'm just going to embarrass myself. But number six is a $16 Pinot Grigio. And, um, you know, I, I didn't used to like Pinot Grigio at all, but it's really growing on me. Talk about number six. Yeah, so um, I am not the person to teach you how to speak Italian, but it's the Alios Lagadere uh, Pinot Grigio um, Terra Alpina 2019. So Pinot Grigio is a white wine. Um, it's very crisp. Their Pinot Grigio and Pinot Gris are the same grape and the same wine made from the same grape, just in two different styles. So Pinot Grigio does refer to the Italian version, where it's going to be um, made in a very light, crisp style with, uh, you know, it's very similar to Sauvignon Blanc, I would say, as far as kind of weight in your mouth, it's really light. 
and juicy, but with some nice um, spicy notes and sometimes a, f- a hint of floral. Uh, Pinot Gris, which is kind of based on the Alsatian version, might be a little bit more medium bodied and a little bit more uh, fruit focused. But Pinot Gris shows the, the white wine you want when you're eating Italian food. It goes great with seafood and it's um, just one of those, my mouth's watering. Oh my gosh. About it. You're, you're drooling. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's just one of those wines that is just just a, a, a breath of fresh crispness. So, and I'm um, going to encourage you to pair it with popcorn. It pairs yeah. It pairs yes. perfectly with popcorn. Just do yeah. that. Anyway, the next wine, you wrote the review on this one. I did. And, and it's um, it's a wine that kind of confuses people a little bit, but it's yeah. a Fumé Blanc. This is a Sonoma mm-hmm. County Fumé Blanc from Dry Creek. Yeah, and I I just love the story. So I I I've been reviewing Sauvignon Blancs from California for a long time, and Dry Creek Vineyard, uh, it's their Fumé Blancs Sonoma County 2020, as you mentioned. So Dry Creek's vin- um, founder David Stair loved Sauvignon Blanc. Um, he was a huge fan of the ones from the Loire Valley, which were available here in the 70s, and he insisted on planting Sauvignon Blanc in what is essentially Zinfandel country, <laughs> and. Thank goodness he did. He's kept the style and his daughter, Kim Stair Wallace, is now in charge. And a Fumé Blanc, should we go into the whole Fumé Blanc history? Okay, let's give it a, a really quick Okay, you got it. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Fumé Blanc is a made-up name for Sauvignon Blanc. It was, I believe we're giving credit to Robert Mondavi for coming up with this, but he wanted, he he came up with the name Fumé Blanc to to invoke the Puy Fumés, which are some of the versions from France. The idea was an attempt to make a wine in that style, which tended to be kind of rather clunky in its beginning and had a lot of heavy oak influence. And so when you saw the word Fumé, you, you could assume that it was A, from California, B, a Sauvignon Blanc, and yeah. then C, it was probably made in kind of an oaky style. And California vintners really struggled with this style for a long time, to be honest. Um, a lot of them kind of seemed like they wanted to be um, Chardonnay wannabes for a while. Well, give credit to um, Dry Creek Vineyards and other uh, producers who decided to keep the moniker and keep the history there. Um, even though this wine doesn't have any oak influence, um, he likes the name Fumé Blanc. It's bone dry. It has citrus and a lot of um, like fresh uh, cut grass and herbs in the nose. I usually get like a lemon verbena note from that, if you can imagine what that smells like. Yeah. And it is just, it the, the aromas leap out of the glass and it is, again, my mouth's watering. And we're just so, um, so proud of the, again, a second generation family who's able to make a consistent wine and be part of California's history when it comes to this grape. Didn't uh, Robert Mondavi toast the barrels a bit more for the Fumé yeah. Blanc. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not going to, I mean, there, there are some great examples of that. And, and actually now the Robert Mondavi program of Sauvignon Blanc is really impressive, but, but yeah, I think back in the eighties, no one really quite knew what to do with it. And Sauvignon Blanc is one of those grapes that really has a personality as far as growing it. It really grows really quickly and easily and produces a lot of grapes. Yeah. And so it's kind of hard to deny a plant when it wants to produce a lot of grapes. So it kind of was, you know, overcropped, um, which kind of can dilute the flavor in some cases. But there, I mean, man, there is such a revolution happening or a renaissance, I should say, of California Sauvignon Blanc these days because of influences from New Zealand and Bordeaux and other places in the world. They're taking it so much more seriously, um, starting in the vineyard, the way they're planting it, the way they're cropping it, and then into the wine winery. And actually, uh, Dry Creek Vineyard makes a handful of Sauvignon Blancs, including this Fumé, and they're all made in different styles. They're experimenting with 
different fermentation vessels and chestnut barrels. And yeah. it's just so exciting to see how much um, room they have to play with this grape. Okay. Now, speaking of a grape that can be made in a lot of different styles, and yeah. we have three different styles, at least, of this grape, and that's Chardonnay. You got yeah. more oak and butter than you can possibly stand, <laughs> no oak and butter, and then something in the middle just to make everybody happy. Right. But another California wine on this list, number eight, mm -hmm. is a Stag's Leap Chardonnay from the Napa Valley 2019. If you don't like Chardonnay, try this one. I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, it's the, and I should be clear, it's the Stag's Leap Wine Cellars. There's also a Stag's Leap Winery that also makes terrific wine. Stag's Leap's also a region, a subregion mm. of Napa. So basically, Stag's Leap's just a good thing to see on a bottle of wine. But uh, this is a Stag's Leap Wine Cellars, Chardonnay, Napa Valley, Korea, I believe is how you say it, 2019. We gave it 91 points. It's $34. And yeah, a lot of people probably think of Cabernet when it comes to Stag's Leap Wine Cellars, but like a lot of Cabernet producers. They also make white wines. And this is from a little little known areas in Napa, um, Oak Knoll and Atlas Peak, where the fruit is, is considered to be a little bit richer. And then winemaker Marcus Nataro uses new, new barrels for fermenting and aging. So, um, and then there's also some Coonsville fruit in there, which is a little cooler. So again, you're, you're seeing a thread in here that some of the best value wines are wines that are going to be blended from different sources. You know, a single yeah. vineyard is kind of tied to production, but blends um, give a lot more room to play. Marianne Warabick is with me. She is the Napa Valley Bureau Chief for Wine Spectator Magazine, and we're talking about the 10 best value wines right here on Grape Encounters Radio. Welcome to Total Wine and More, a wonderland for wine spirits and beer lovers. No matter what's on your holiday table, we have the wine and the savings to match. Pop open some bubbly as guests gather round. Pair baked ham with Cabernet for some tasty magic. Turkey and stuffing plays nicely with Pinot Noir. And while you're at it, check out the top 20 wines of the year and discover standout gifts for everyone on your list. With over 8,000 wines, 4,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers to choose from, you can expect the unexpected, always at ridiculously low prices, with the best service in America. Choose in-store pickup or curbside pickup, shipping and delivery. Explore more in-store, online at TotalWine.com or on the app. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina, delivery available in select markets. Okay, so we really got to power through the next two, and I want to get them out there because they're okay. both California wines. They California really has totally dominated this list. 
dominated. Yeah. Is this all done blind? Yeah. Well, good question. So the wines are all reviewed blind. But okay. when we come together with this list, there is a lot of discussion and back and forth. The editors nominated wines. We crunched numbers. We ran out lists. We do try to offer balance when we can. But yeah, in the end, this was a really good year for California wines made in high volume with great you know, production and, and scores and things that we're really excited about. I should mention that in the January, February issue, we have other stories where our editors kind of give some tips on other regions and kind of little secret corners of the wine world where they find good value. So um, if you're looking for other sources for value wines, please check out that issue. But yeah, I think we're on, on number nine. Shall you do the introduction? This is one that you reviewed as well. Yeah. Well, so- I, I wrote the I wrote the uh, tidbit about it. You're right. So this is the Fry Brothers Cabernet Sauvignon, Alexander Valley. So Sonoma good. Re- so Reserve. good. You're familiar with this one? Yes. So I think this is a story about Alexander Valley. You know, a lot of people look to Napa for Cabernet. And of course, it has a reputation for a right. good region. But land prices are expensive and cost of everything there is kind of pricey. So sometimes if you look outside the marquee region, you'll find really good values. So Alexander Valley has, I think, long been a source of some really kind of sleeper wines and hidden values there. And there are these hillsides that have a lot of sun exposure. So even though Alexander Valley might seem like a cooler region, it's actually quite warm there and a good place to grow Cabernet, which likes warmer weather. And then, of course, the Fry Branch have have long been a name in the history of wine. Again, it's it's owned currently by the Gallo family, who's able to add other vineyard sources and have the ability to scale up production of this wine from its original idea. But the majority of the grapes do come from vineyards they own. Um, in Alexander Valley. Yeah, and I, I've got to put a plug in for the Gallo folks because sometimes yeah. people hear Gallo and they sort of still, you know, think mm-hmm. about the inexpensive wines that Gallo became famous for. But Gallo has bought up a lot of wineries. And what people tell me who work for those wineries is that Gallo doesn't come in and change things. They buy successful wineries and then they let them do what they do best. So if anything, what they do do is infuse capital into the operation so they can do that thing even better. And so just keep that in mind when you hear the name Gallo. absolutely right. Yeah. And if you think of a winery who has a creative person at the at the head and wants to create new bottlings, new 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 ideas. And yeah. you know, they don't have the resources to sell their wine in 50 states. And Gallo does. And so that infrastructure that they can bring to brands where they already have distributors, they already have footholds and things, they have accountants and yeah. you know, all that stuff, it really takes a load off of winemakers to go do what they want to do. And I think that's also going to be one of the stories, you know, with our our next wine, which taps into another family run company that has a tremendous impact in California. Yeah. And and by the way, this uh, last wine that we're going to talk about, uh-huh. these winemakers yeah. are just knocking it out of the park right now. And they're in my, I have to say now, former stomping grounds because I'm stomping like Lucy in Italy. But the folks at Cambria yeah. are doing an exceptional job. Yeah. So th- this uh, number 10 on our wine value of the year list is the, sh- the Cambria Chardonnay Santa Maria Valley Catherine's Vineyard 2019. And and um, I was referring to the fact that it's part of the Kendall Jackson family of wine. Right. And Kendall Jackson, again, another family-run company who has a particular eye for being able to build brands and keep their success. Cambria is actually kind of a sweet story. Barbara Banky, who's now the head of the Jackson Family Vineyards, this right. was kind of her baby. This was, I think, 
one of the first or one of the first significant uh, land purchases that the Jackson family made outside of their Sonoma home. And wow, was she onto something because Santa Barbara is another region that's really hot right now, especially for yes. Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. And Cambria has never skipped a beat. It has just gone from strength to strength. Um, this one's made in, uh, you were talking about different uh, styles of California Chardonnay. I, you know, you said there are three. I count 30 and I, I don't even have, <laughs> I don't even have names for all of them yet. Um, but this one's definitely for people who like things a little creamier and spice, i.e., you know, some oak influence here. And there's nothing wrong with that. You're allowed to, to love um, oaky Chardonnay, but you know, but because it's also from Santa Barbara um, County, you know, there's also that freshness and crispness and juiciness, and it's you know, you're not going to feel like you're sucking on a toothpick at the end. So, and I have to give credit to um, winemaker Jill Russell. Jackson Family Wines hires a lot of female winemakers who really know how to make kick-ass wines, and you know, hats off to Jill on this one. This was aged nine months with 20% new French oak barrels in the mix for people who know their Chardonnays that I just made some people really excited <laughs> to and, hear and that. Yeah. Yes. And I was just going to say that if you are one of those people who defected away from Chardonnay a while back because the butter was really getting under your skin, you might want to revisit it. And also Chardonnays from out of California, out of the mm -hmm. U.S. are really super good. You are right that there's probably 50 styles, maybe. But if you think you don't like Chardonnay, just like I said about Zinfandel, you actually do. You honestly do. You just have to try a bunch of them. Yeah, maybe a way to do that is to go to your wine shop or the next time you're in a restaurant and yeah. you're having a chat, say, yeah, it's been a while since I've tried Chard. I didn't really like the oaky, buttery stuff. What do you recommend? And, and you know, maybe that you're right. It's time to dip your toe back in. You know, I think um, like a lot of styles in wine, there are pendulums that swing back and forth. But I feel like in Chardonnay, we're kind of somewhere uh, swinging back and forth more towards the middle where yeah, there is more exactly. of a desire for balance, um, even in um, styles and, and fewer and fewer extremes out there. But if you want to know where the buttery, oaky, you know, sweet ones are, send me a private note and I'll tell you where to find them. We are going to have to wrap it up, Marianne. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate you spending so much time with me. I do want to say one thing in general. These are 10 wines yeah. that are very, very affordable the best thing you can do for your wine life is to drink a lot of different wines. And I don't mean that, you know, that drink more wine. I'm just saying taste more wines because I really, it really gets under my skin when people say, I don't like Cabernet Sauvignon or I don't like mm -hmm. this. I don't like that. You know what? I don't care what the varietal is. Chances are somebody's making a bottle that you will like. You just haven't tried enough of them. Oh, that's such a lovely way of looking at it. I think we agree. I, I, we know that's $20 and less and $15 and less is where the exploration with wine happens. Yeah. And we encourage that, absolutely. Yeah, go try some wine you haven't tried in a while. <laughs> That's going to do it for Grape Encounters. I sure appreciate y'all listening. And uh, I'll bet you we rerun this episode a couple of times too. Because oh. Marianne has been one of the most listened to guests in the history of this show, which by the way is 652 episodes. Oh. That's a bunch, over 15 years. We'll be back. Wait, 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 wait. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, David. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for everything. And you're going to kick some butt in Italy. We're looking forward to hearing from you there. Well, I can't kick butt there because they'll find me to be a troublemaker. So I'm just going to lay low. Anyway, we'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks. Thanks.